Welcome to Geared for Growth. I'm your host, Mike Mortlock, Managing Director of MCG Quantity Surveyors. Another fantastic expert for you today. We've got Brendan Clark, who's the principal buyer's agent and founder of the Property Curator. Now, he has a, a proper background. We've got a Bachelor of Arts, a Bachelor of Commerce uh, in Finance and International Business. He's got an MBA in Business and Technology. So he comes from the finance world and it won't take very long for you to understand how valuable that is when he's doing his due diligence on property. So we talk about how he creates a property strategy and why it's so important, how to avoid spruikers and making sure that you are being very targeted in the areas that you're looking at. He only works with a few clients at a time because he is obsessive about the detail and I'm sure you're going to get some really good light bulb moments and ideas from this one. Here's Brendan. Brendan Clark, welcome to Geared for Growth. Thanks for having me, Mike. It's a real pleasure, man. I've been looking forward to getting you on because you've got uh, a very clever brain that I'm going to to tease apart. I, at least that's that's my hope for the show today. But for anyone that hasn't uh, come across you before, Brendan, could you let us know who you are and what you specialise in? Uh, yeah, so my name's Brendan Clark. I'm the director of a um, advice agency in Sydney called the Property Curator, um, and I help people. I help home buyers and investors buy in both uh, Brisbane and Sydney. Beautiful. Now, give us a bit of the background on the young Brendan. What were the posters on the wall growing up? The young Brendan, yes, yeah, a while ago now. Um, mate, from memory, it's, it's going back a little bit. Um, nothing too exotic, but, but the sort of typical sort of um, surfing posters, uh, mostly bodyboarding sort of stuff, and a few band um, posters. I mean, to be honest, I didn't really surf anyway, but um, you know, to try and keep uh, keep in with the cool kids. So, um, <laughs> growing up down in the Shire, that's kind of what people did. Yeah, so that's yeah. what was on my wall. You either surf or you don't belong here. Yeah, or you pretend to. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You just put the posters up. That's it. That's it, mate. It's a good proxy. <laughs> what about property? How how did you get started in property, and what was your first investment? Um. So the first one was back in in August two thousand and seven. A little. A little one-bedroom unit in, in Marrickville in the inner west of Sydney. Um, so I'd been living in, in London for, for about five years. So I'd sort of always had um, the intention to, to purchase property and to, you know, to invest in property. But, but being over there, particularly sort of uh, on contract work and, and away from the country and stuff, uh, a little bit tricky to do so. So sort of once I got back to Australia, I sort of hit the ground running um, and purchased that one in Marrickville. But I guess the backstory to it is that, I'd, I'd known for a long time I wanted to purchase. Like I'd done some sort of a uh, little bit of real estate uh, study in, in undergrad um, and I'd sort of always had that interest. So I'd sort of read, oh, geez, pretty much anything that, that came out, um, you know, in, in book form or magazine form or whatever. I'd studied as much as I could from, from London um, and elsewhere to try and understand the market as best I could. Um, I understand, though, that back then, so I bought in 2007, so obviously I was, I was reading and learning and, and just, you know, consuming anything I could, it, it wasn't so much that there were, you know, information mediums like your podcast or um, all those sort of online forums or Facebook groups or any of that. That, that sort of wasn't really around. Um, so a lot of it was sort of just reading and, and trying to, to get information that way. So um, to get to where, you know, to purchase that first property, I, I sort of, I, I'd subscribed to um, API magazine um, back when that was in existence. And I sort of 
used to get those sent over to me and uh, I can remember vividly and, and my, my flatmates probably still laugh about it, but I used to have my, my Dell laptop, my brick of a Dell laptop there and I'd sit on the couch in my share house in, in Hammersmith in London and sort of <laughs> type out from the back of those those magazines looking at different median prices and, and vacancy rates and stuff around places that I thought could be okay to invest in. But again, you know, I didn't know too much about it. So so once I got back to uh, to Sydney then, I started in earnest going out to places, having a look at areas and, um, yeah, sort of led to, to Marrickville and, and at the time it is a very different, um, you know, place to what it is now. It's, it's a lot more gentrified. It's a lot more, um, interesting and fun now, but back, back then it was, you know, relatively cheap, but, um, you know, I couldn't argue that I knew it was going to gentrify into the place that it is today, but it had enough going for it. And, and most importantly for me, it was, it was pretty cheap at the time. So, so I bought that one. Um, and then I ended up buying up the road uh, not long after that, probably about a year um, after that from the same agent actually. So and that sort of started the portfolio. And yeah, I've still got still got those properties, and um, they've they've done done pretty well for me. So that's that's how I sort of got into it. Yeah, yeah. Buying in Marrickville, you know, around two thousand seven, two thousand eight. That's probably enough, you know, for from yeah, a property that. Yeah. yeah, yeah, that'll do. You know, hang, hang the boots up. Um, <laughs> Well, that was the GFC, remember, like at the time, um, it wasn't, you know, you, you look at things in, in retrospect and it can seem like to be, a, you know, an obvious thing to buy in those type areas that, that have those sort of drivers. But but when you're in the thick of it, it's not as simple as that. You're sort of looking, it's hard to sort of um, get that sort of helicopter view, I guess. So, um, you know, I'm, I'm fortunate. There's, you can do you can do stuff with property and you can always think that you're an expert or something, but as soon as you do that, you're going to fall over, right? So, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and everyone's a billionaire in in hindsight. I'm, sure. I'm interested in how you got to to being a, a buyer's agent, and we'll talk specifically about the types of properties that you're into and that sort of thing. Um, just by your, uh, I guess your your trajectory when you do a, a cursory LinkedIn stalking. I mean, you were you were studying uh, foreign language. You did a Bachelor of Commerce, majoring in international business and finance. And um, I guess, like you know, I'm just seeing a proud mum somewhere glowing in the background because it seemed like you were galloping across a velvet velvet field and you've come crashing back to earth stuck talking to me i mean where, where did it go wrong <laughs> um yeah i don't know if anything's gone wrong uh, but I, I can't argue that i mapped out absolutely everything <laughs> um so at undergrad i did i did commerce i did arts as well um and then i i took off overseas from there i'd sort of well, actually, the first place I worked um, was in Slovakia, which is in Central Europe. So um, that wasn't sort of anything that I had on my timeline from from going through high school to end up working for, um, you know, briefly at Ernst & Young in, in Slovakia. But, you know, nonetheless, you take the opportunities when they present. So that was that was a lot of fun. And then, um, you know, then from there I did what, what a lot of Australians and, and Kiwis do and ended up in, in London and stuff. So... Um, yeah, you know, I've, I've always had this sort of interest in, in real estate and, and property and um, sort of as I, I went along, I sort of, I, I really wanted to work in that space at, at some stage. But, you know, I ended up working in, in Qantas for, for a long time and, and as a, uh, a bit of an aviation geek as well, that, that was amazing. That was a, a real sort of bucket list, if you like. So I was fortunate to work there. Um, and then things um, led to me being able to work in in sport, so um, or you know sport and entertainment, I'd say. So um, you know all these opportunities when when they're there, you, you know you look at them and you're like, well, you'd be mad not to take those opportunities 
when they present. So it's certainly been an interesting uh, journey to get where I am. There's been lots of, um, you know, I've done a lot of additional study as well. I did my master's. I've done um, a lot of other stuff as well around real estate um, and and finance and stuff. So, but yeah, here, here we are on a, on a Wednesday morning uh, talking about property and, and, you know, I wouldn't really change anything though. But that said, it's, it's a bit of an interesting way to get to where I am at the moment. Yeah, it's a bit of a zigzaggy direction. Now, of course, I'm just kind of, you know, being my typical pain in the backside interviewee, giving, giving you rubbish about, you know, <laughs> fa- fa- falling from, from some heavenly trajectory into the, you know, into the, into the sewers of real estate. But obviously that's your, your passion. And of course, mine as well. So this was mm. never going to work for too long. Um, <laughs> I, I want to talk about how, in, how investors are, are often getting it wrong. Um, I, I've read you talk about, um, um, the the method of of doing the the property first rather than the the location is dangerous. Why is that so important to get right? Is to to find a location and then the property that fits in that area. Yeah. So I guess when I talk to people and, and clients and, and stuff and write about that, what I mean in, in essence is is essentially being sort of really strategic in how you approach these things, right? So finding some sort of process that works for you and, and everybody's different. But what I found, um, I guess, over over the years that where people can go wrong relatively quickly and relatively easily is getting caught up in the emotion of it all, right? So it, uh, property investing, real estate in, in Australia is kind of like a pastime if you think about it. Like people talk about uh, footy politics and they'll talk about property, right? It's It's just one of those things that everybody's got an opinion on. Um, we're lucky that we've got, you know, some, some pretty good technology out there that allows us to search for property and, you know, talk about, um, you know, in, in the main real estate and domain. But, but what it can also allow people to do is sort of get, get swept up and, and really sort of look at, um, you know, before doing any sort of research, they can just jump on online, look at these portals. Um, and before they know it, they're seriously considering, um, a, a place, right? So to give you an example of how you might get there, uh, I mean, I, you know, you, flick through the papers um, and you, you, you can see sort of plenty of those sort of property marketeer type type things who are investing heavily in, in inserts or whatever it might be in, a, in magazines or, or that. You might see some stuff being retargeted on Facebook. You might get a tip from, um, you know, a radio ad. You might get a tip from a friend. Whatever it is, people will find out about a location, right? So that's not location research. That's people going, well, I heard on the radio that Brisbane's set to boom, right? And there's all you, you've got to ask why. People are advertising like that. There's all there's always something inherent in that. But nonetheless, people will find out about an area in that, and that could uh, could constitute to them um, location research. And then the next thing is they jump on um, they jump on domain or, or real estate, and then they sort of just sort of filter few through a few things. They might uh, inspect a few things, and um, you know it's so easy to purchase, right? Like you, we've got <laughs> yeah. um, you know, a strong mortgage broking industry out here. Uh, the banks, by and large, are willing and eager to to lend where they can. Um, you know, so it's not that tricky for most people in in sort of steady employment to to find an investment property get, if they've got the uh, the deposit and stuff like that, right? So, um, because there's, you know, I would argue, because there's so few barriers to actually doing that, people can end up purchasing stuff that perhaps they shouldn't because they just haven't put the research in. I know I've got some some friends of mine who have done similar things who have been. Um, you know, who have been sold. I don't want to use the word spruker, but you know, you know the type of things that we're talking about, where um, mm. some of the new pro- property off off the plan, heavily uh, incentivized for people to sell into them, 
Um, and you know that, that's unfortunate for, for those guys. So um, what I like to do for, for obviously for myself, but for my clients especially, is to take that sort of to take an opposite approach and um, to understand first and foremost why you want to buy, which sounds cliched, but just take a few minutes to, to think about that, um, as opposed to just saying I need a property because everybody everybody's got a property. This is more saying. Uh, you know, I'm, I'm working with a financial planner, with an accountant, or something. They've identified that it wouldn't be bad for me to get access to um, to a growth property. Um, you know, what sort of price point am I looking at? Uh, that you know, what do I need the property to do for me in terms of uh, growth or, or potential sort of cash flow, what, whatever it might be. But but again, just being sort of strategic um, and approaching it that way, and then you'll find the sort of um, the price point that you're after, and then from there you can sort of say, well, what locations could meet meet that criteria? And then even if you don't get everything right, even if you don't get every single piece of the analysis right, you're ahead of most people because you've been strategic in how you're doing it. And then it's after you do, you know, we could probably talk about what you need to do later, but it's after you do these sort of steps that then and only then should you actually jump on domain real estate or whatever your sort of, um, you know, chosen way of finding property is. Um, and not the other way around because that way, you know, you 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 don't run um, the risk of making as many mistakes. That, that's mm. my view anyway. Well, uh, you know, I think that's fantastic advice and, and not a lot of people think about their why. And, you know, if you're being honest with yourself, it might be, oh, because, you know, my brother's got three properties and I've got none <laughs> or, yes. you know, I want to be rich. And, yeah. you know, that, all, all sorts of things are possible if you if you know what you're trying to achieve, right? But I just, I love that point about jumping on the real estate portals because, you know, you type in, oh, I need, my budget is is 500K and I, I, I want something that's a house and gosh, don't they get served up to you at a rate of knots and you could be falling in love uh, against your will. And I guess that's what the real estate agents want to happen, right? They don't care about your investment property success. Yeah, well, that's it. And, and there's, there's people outside of, um, the traditional real estate agents as well and, and we could take that the real estate agents obviously being more of a transactional focus and they have a property to sell you you could be investor you could be a homeowner but there's there's plenty of people out there um you know they're fine scrupulous or, or whatever but their their model is um to uh you know to develop and sell properties and stuff so i understand that they're professionals in what they do and you know once they've got your email address or potentially retargeting you on advertising um, I understand that they've got some pretty well-paid and some pretty intelligent people in the background, um, you know, working to, to make sure that you're served up ads when you need to see them um, and when you might be ready to sort of purchase. And it's hard for anybody, you know. It might be it might be real estate. It might be, be um, you know, an infomercial at, at 11 p.m. On a, on a Wednesday night or something. But, you know, marketing is is uh, alive and well in, in the real estate space. So you just got to sort of – my advice to everybody is just be intentional um, you'll end up cutting out a lot of the noise, find out what you want to do with it, and then, you know, you, you, you're on the way. That's that's probably the best first step for anybody, I think. Yeah, absolutely. Great great advice. I want to know, let, let's say we, we, we've got a budget of whatever amount, right? I mean, that that's a... That's something that is kind of arbitrary. The bank will only lend you so much and that might dictate the areas that you're looking in. But outside of that, we're able to invest, of course, around Australia. How best do we do our due diligence on the area and understand a particular location and why it might be a good prospect for further research? 
Yeah, so this is um, this is the, <laughs> the hard bit, and I guess why people often um, don't do that and look for easy win sort of stuff in a, in a pre-packaged property. But in essence, I've spent oh god, un, untold hours and stuff trying to trying to um, understand this from a, a simple sort of approach. And what I've come down to in the simplest way I can explain it is um, like if we sort of not focusing so much on capital cities at the moment, but if we just took a region or a, a major town or something. When I'm looking at it, I'm looking for a few sort of things, probably three or four. Um, I'm looking at the economic situation, the economic drivers. Um, I'm looking at the lifestyle drivers. I'm also really keen to understand the affordability story. Um, and then and only then do I sort of try and get a little bit more into the weeds and to understand supply demand of, of that particular area, right? So if I go back a bit and, and talk about the economics, um, you, a lot of the sort of information you need, you, you, you rely on Google. Um, if it still wishes to work with Australia after this week, then you would rely on Google or whatever um, will take its place. But you, you, you kind of need to research a town or a, a city or a region, whatever, as if you're buying a part of it, right? So the property is, is what you're buying, but you need to understand why, why that is, right? And a lot of people will focus, obviously, what I believe on, on that property and not so much, um, you know, what's underpinning that. So what I mean is if I'm looking at economics, I'm trying to get an understanding of, um, you know, the town's, the town's sort of main industries, not, hopefully not just one, but, but several. And what do they, they span? How many people work in these? What, you know, what are the average incomes of people? Um, if, if you have two or three major employers um, in, in various industries, how are they going, right? You don't need to know everything about their profit for the last 10 years but you do need to understand that um are they in a good situation or not you know are they going to be um pulling up stumps and and calling it quits um because of the nature of their industry right so that that could be an issue for for certain industries as we go forward and, and have sort of um i don't know changes towards um you know where you know industry policy and stuff like that so there's certainly a, a risk around that um again we're trying to understand about where people work so you know, your average punter in town, where's he get his income from? Um, you know, again, we talked about the, the types of industries and, and how they're sort of tracking. And, and then you're trying to get an understanding of the sort of the population story, right? So I don't necessarily buy into the story that you need population growth to make an area good. There's, um, there, there's two sides of that debate. But I certainly want to understand about the population, right? Are people moving into the area or? Or, um, or not, right? Because certainly, um, you know, if people are moving away, then that's a, that's a place I'm not I'm not really interested in. So that's that sort of overall thing. I'm looking for economic vibrancy. I'm looking for obviously as low unemployment as, as makes sense compared to um, you know averages for that type of town in uh, national industries, whatever. Bearing in mind that we're still in a pandemic, so at the moment things could be a, a little bit different. But you you do most of that stuff on desktop when you get more seriously into it nothing's going to be getting on the ground driving by um speaking to shopkeepers i, I do that a lot it, it's probably annoys them but like you you <laughs> find out a lot more about that than you're going to find out from um an article on the herald um so you do all that sort of stuff you try and you know have a look at how many shops are, are shut up um you know those sort of really common sense simple things that just take that little bit extra um to be able to do if you, if you can't do it then find somebody who can do it for you because at the end of the day, when you're buying into these places, it's not what it shouldn't be, in my view, the way I invest. It shouldn't be a two or three year uh, proposition unless you're speculating. If you're investing, then we're looking at, you know, potentially holding this thing for the very long term. 
or you know intergenerational or something so if you take that approach then i want to do everything i can to to back the right horse um and one of the big parts of that's economics i believe anyway another one that's um you know is about the lifestyle story of the town so you can find plenty of places that you know might be they might on paper look pretty good um from an economic um industrial sort of point of view um high paying jobs and stuff like that but they may not be uh, places i should say where people want to live in you know long term right so and that's certainly the case in some um strictly mining focused towns right so again when, when you do that you're trying to understand who's living there and, and you know you can you can find stuff out from from the abs and, and other stats um we're fortunate out here to have um access to a lot of credible data and a lot of it for free so it's just doing the homework but you know if i'm finding an area where it's dominated by tenants because nobody wants to take the plunge and get a mortgage and buy their own piece of dirt in that particular town or city then you know again there, there could be some red flags um Right, so if we sort of focus on that, we've got the first of all the job story, what the economic story there, right? Then we've got the lifestyle story. Um, you know, if if I take a town um, that that I'm fond of, it's not it's not you know advice to go out and buy there, but in um, Orange in Central West New South Wales, that's got a good economic story, right? That's got a, a diverse industry set. Um, it's got a little bit of gold mining up there. It's got uh, the viticulture with all the wineries. It's got um, you know some good sort of um, uh, health workers there because they've got a pretty good um, hospital uh, system and then um, you know a really sort of um, nice tourism set as well so that that ticks off there but but equally as important perhaps for, for sort of longevity is it's a cracking place to visit and live it's got all the sort of um, nice parks and it's, it's a really tidy clean pleasant town right so if i was um researching somewhere like that and again that's not advice to buy there but if i was looking for a town that had those sort of things in it well I'm starting to think, well, maybe it's worth looking at this a little bit more. But again, if I, I went to a place and it's all sort of tumbleweed or I could, you know, maybe read about it online or something, so and it's all tumbleweed and just doesn't have that vibrancy, you know, there's probably, not to say it's not going to make money, it's not going to be a decent place to invest, but they just might be safer, more sensible places to invest in. But um, then, right, so you can see it's sort of, it's it's stage gates it's a process that you've you've got to follow because right now if we've done those those top two things economics um, and lifestyle drivers wow we could have you know a hundred different places to invest in that that all could look good so then what i'm trying to understand is where you know is it is it a place that the normal person can afford to buy in or rent in right so that talks to affordability and You'll hear people talk about um, only ever invest in affordable areas and and only ever look for cash flow. This is perhaps a little bit new, more nuanced than this because what I'm doing is I'm not looking at the cash flow of a property for, of an area first. What I'm looking for is good places to invest and then trying to understand can it can it make sense for for myself to invest in there, you know, my clients or whatever, as well as the normal punter. Right, because if we, you know, again we talk economics, we talk lifestyle. I could get you loads of places in the eastern suburbs of Sydney that have those in spades, right? But they're not affordable. So you know, it's not to say they're not a, not a, a nice place to live or to buy into. I'm sure you can still make money there, but it's a matter of what your holding costs look like, and and are there plenty of other people who could afford to buy that off you if you ever needed to sell? So that's a that's a thing I look at, and um, you know, at the moment I think across Australia there's some there's evidence of some some certain quite a few areas cities and, and and some towns that 
you know, have all these three in spades and, um, you know, then we're sort of, then we can, if we can find that, perhaps we look at the next thing, which is a bit more into the weeds, as I said, and that's trying to understand the supply and demand of, of um, the area or the suburb or the, the region, whatever whatever you're looking at. So, um, yeah, it's, it's a bit of a long-winded process, but if you imagine you've sort of got this funnel at the start and you're looking at all these different areas and then you're sort of discarding ones and then it's, you're sort of, using a sieve or whatever the analogy is to try and find, you know, 10 or 20 places that might make sense for you to, to, um, to research further. And to be honest, there's never one area that's the standout. There could be a handful, there could be 30, there could be, it just depends. But if you're doing all that, I guarantee you're ahead of the curve from, from where most people go. Wow. So buy an orange. No, I'm just kidding. Yeah. Um, that's, Sorry, mate, long answer to your question. Right? <laughs> no, that, uh, I'm, I'm making a joke because honestly, I was blown away by the response. So that, that, um, that, that is an, an amazing insight into, into the due diligence that you're doing. Of course, how your brain works. I mean, I, I've got some great images of you annoying shopkeepers. And I, I think that also speaks to the, to the value of, of hiring a professional because, the individual perhaps should be talking to local shopkeepers, but they're, they're very unlikely to do that. Whereas if you're representing a, a group of buyers, you, you're, you've, you've got the sort of scale to be able to do that. So, um, yeah, some, some absolute gold uh, in, in your breakdown of that. So thanks for taking the time to that. That's fantastic. Um, when it comes to supply and demand, I mean, that, that's something that almost every interview I do, it's, you know, supply and demand comes up, right, because it's a very fundamentally important economic tenant. But how, how can we be confident in finding an area where the long-term demand is going to out, outpace the, the supply? Is it as simple as looking at something like historical building starts? Is it worth talking to the to the local council how can we be sure of that over say a 10 or 20 year time horizon the give for growth property investing podcast is presented by our business mcg quantity surveyors if you're an investor or a property professional looking to get the best tax depreciation deductions for yourself or your clients please get in touch with us at mcgqs.com.au. It's our mission to help as many property investors as we can to maximise their claims and maximise their property education as well. Um, over that time horizon, you, you can't be assured of anything, obviously, um, because I guess first and foremost, um, things can and do change. Um, but you can you can get an idea, right? So f first of all, if I'm sort of looking at an area and again where we've got to, maybe we've got to a few different areas, right? And then we're sort of trying to understand where, where they are in terms of supply and demand. Um, what I'm effectively looking for is, is w where they are in equilibrium or not, right? So again, we could look at orange and, I mean, I know the stats on it, but, um, you know, what, what I'm sort of looking to do is even if I can find these areas, if there's a nice healthy balance and, you know, the argument is that there's no sort of um, trigger, if you will, um, you know, to, to sort of to trigger um, price growth, right? So I, I guess in the beginning, you're sort of looking at where you are right now, not necessarily into the future, but where you are right now, because I could find a place and it could tick off all those boxes and it might go into the uh, future pile, right? And there's plenty of those around. Um, and then it's a matter of looking at the trends and understanding, well, where we were, and I'll tell you how to do that in a minute, but um, where we were, where we are, and then, you know, if where we are isn't exactly where you 
potentially needed to be in terms of, um, you know, finding a place that, that may be set for um, some short to medium term growth, then, um, you know, we might sort of put that on the watch list. So I guess, look, there's no, there's no hard and fast way of doing it. And, and supply and demand is, is obviously, it's what you learn in, in year 10 economics. Um, or year nine if you're doing it properly, but whatever. Um, you learn it in economics and, and it's easy to say it's probably harder to actually understand what you're talking about from a, a property sense. So um, the go-tos that I do, and this is just, you know, free software and, um, a- again, these are estimates. So it's not it's not as easy as understanding supply and demand for certain other things. Um, but I, I, I sort of look at SQM. That's um, put out by Louis Christopher and his team. So uh, I can't remember the exact, week, recent, uh, the exact um, uh, website, but Google that. So SQM's got a good way of looking at um, the stock on market, right? And if you can, again, you know, they, they say that the trend is your friend, and, and in this case it's, it's, it's true. You can have a look at the stock on market. You can do it by the uh, postcode uh, suburb level, right? So if I'm doing that and I'm looking at a place and it just, but the stock's going, you know, up and to the right, meaning there's, there's a sort of an increase there, then again, it, it's probably not a sort of place that I'm, I'm necessarily thinking is going to have that sort of short-term, um, you know, impetus for, for price growth. So SQM in general, uh, it's a free resource for this sort of stuff here. It's got a, an awesome amount of, of information. You can look at vacancy rates as well. That's actually a, a measure of supply and demand as well, but it, it tends to, it's obviously a measure for tenants. We're looking at a, a measure from both tenants and, um, and purchasing a property, right? So, the other one, um, the other bit of software, I'll give a shout out to uh, your mate uh, Kent Lardner um, oh, yeah. and Arjun. So they've got their new um, website uh, called, I think it's the Property Nerds. Um, Google that as well, and then they've got some really inf- good information, and they tend to look at it in a slightly different way to SQM, and they sort of talk about a uh, number of months of um, at, of stock on market, right? So that, that's a good way of of um, looking at it. Uh, again. Any sort of data, whatever you're looking at, the one piece of data in isolation tells you nothing. So you need to understand different um, trends or something. So I know um, Ken and that have done uh, a lot of work behind the scenes that collect that, that data. So you can actually have a look at where they were 12 months ago and where they are now. And that will give you two snapshots. It's broken down by by house by and by unit, right? So what we're looking at there is sort of this intersection of, of supply and demand. Um, and then another one, if you want to go a bit deeper, this is... Um, and I, I certainly use it um, uh, on occasion. It's location score. So that's by uh, Jeremy Shepherd, and, and Jeremy's um, really knows his stuff um, around this sort of supply and demand sort of equation there. So again, if you sort of have, have got an area, and then you start plugging information to to all three of those, um, you know, uh, resources there, um, two free and, and one paid, it's totally worth your time doing that. And again, you're sort of looking at. Um, commonalities between the three because they're all just going to be estimates. They're all going to have their ways of collecting the data and what they do with that. But what we're looking to do as an investor um, is to understand, you know, where they are at a point in time, right? So that's slightly long-winded, but basically what we're trying to do is understand that that imbalance if one exists. Um, then it's going, well, that, that's great. I found a place where, where things are moving pretty quickly. What could it look like in the future? And this is, again, a bit more crystal balling right but um this just a a bit more sort of research so you you mentioned your council website so that's obviously uh, a great one to go to there's there's people will put out research papers and stuff like that um with everything that you read on this or on property in general 
um, but particularly this type of stuff, understand who's doing it and if they've got in, any inherent motive in writing a report one way or another, that's a um, sort yes. of trust but verify in, in all this sort of stuff, including what I'm saying today. Um, but, you know, we're looking at this sort of future pipeline. So there's, there's ways of getting it, right? Like I know the ABS put out certain data and stuff, but, again, if we're looking for the real long term, then we've just got to be sensible and, and understand what could change, right? So an example, um, I've got, um, you know, some strata properties and I've, I've done well in that, And but there's certain types of, of properties, right? They're sort of uh, low-rise things and they're not surrounded by by high-rise apartments, but but certainly in parts of, of Sydney where I live and I, I know it's the same in, in Brisbane and, and Melbourne, certainly, um, you know, there's certain areas that you, you can just, you just know are going to be full of, of apartment buildings um, if everything tracks the way it is um, in the in the future, right? Now, is that future five years or is it 15? You just got to sort of um, be sensible about understanding that and, and understand that you, the product that you're buying, if you're, you're looking at buying those sort of, um, you know, high rise or something like that, it just may not have the scarcity now and it may not have the scarcity into the future. That's going to mean that lots of people demand that. And if lots of people demand that, the supply is short, you know, you know how that works out. Um, the other one I'd sort of uh, caution, but, you know, everyone's mileage may, may vary, but certainly something that I'm not dead keen on is the real sort of, and I don't want to offend anybody, but the real sort of cookie cutter style city fringe, increasingly smaller blocks and high density, people building right to the boundary style properties if there's no scarcity of land, right? So, again, that's that's that sort of supply story saying, look, at the moment there might be enough people looking to buy that. So you, your current metrics could say it's it's an okay market or whatever, right? Again, do your research. But, but if you sort of take, um, what would you look at, like Google Earth or something, any sort of mapping program, and you, you look out, unless it's surrounded by swampy land that can't be developed, rivers, mountains, or something like that, you've got, to, you've got to assume that in the future, either the landowner who owns it or the developer who owns it or, or whatever will seek to, um, to subdivide those and you're going to have more competition. So I guess when I'm looking at supply-demand, it's, it's not an easy thing to do, but it's just about following a few sensible steps um, and just being a bit rational. And the first bit, as I said, is to look at it from a short-term point of view, um, where we are right now, because um, that we sort of we can estimate fairly well, um, and then what it might look like in the future. Because even if something looks good, if there's just a, a huge amount of potential to supply to come on um, and swamp you, then you know again, I, I would argue there's probably better places to put your hard-earned dollar. Yeah, for sure. And I mean, if you're buying a house next to a giant paddock, then it can very easily be rezoned into a massive housing subdivision. So things like that are pretty simple, aren't they? They are very simple, and I, I just think that. Again, my approach to it is is not rocket science. I've learned over the time and um, I've done what I've done. I've made mistakes. I've, I've had wins. I've seen um, people who are far more, um, what you would argue, successful and I've seen their wins and stuff. And this is just, it all just comes down to basics. If I'm going to be honest, there's no tricky formula about anything. It's just doing the work. Well, that is a shame we are going to have to cancel this podcast because I'm not going to be able to milk any more material <laughs> out of it, given that we can sort of probably wrap it up in one show. Yeah, what a shame. But, uh, <laughs> oh, we'll, keep, we'll keep going. Now, I'm interested, once we've sort of locked on to a location, we understand the, uh, the affordability equation, we understand the economics. I'm interested in, in when you start to look at 
the type of property in that location. And, and that's maybe what investors can be a bit guilty of thinking of first. But once we get to that exciting step, you mentioned you've got some strata properties, but I know that you certainly value the land component in an investment property. And you also look at things like what the bank might view this property as. Can you run us through your ideas there? Yeah, I, I do have strata properties. I've got, I got um, you know, freestanding houses and all sorts of stuff. And it, it just sort of depends on um, where you're looking basically. But I guess now you, you get a bit more into the fun stuff where you now have my permission to jump on domain and realestate.com. Um, but what, yeah, okay, so you, you found it, let's just say it's a suburb or whatever or a town or whatever, then it, this isn't too hard, right? So you've got, um, again, we've got sort of census information. I, we're 2016 now for the, for the census, so it's a little bit old, right? But sometimes these things don't change too dramatically um, in, that, in that short term. But, um, you know, if you look at census, Google census quick stats, you can look at it by suburb or, or, a, or a bigger region than that. And that's just going to give you, as it says, a, a sort of a quick snap of a snapshot of the um, of the, the property market and the dwelling types, right? So I guess sense, you just got to be sensible. So if I'm looking at a place and it might be sort of 20k out of a city, and you know five percent of people live in um, detached dwellings like apartments, then you know I might be able to find a really really cheap two better. I'm I'm just not interested in it because. Unless it's an absolute howler of a dealer, it has something else going for it, um, then it's not. It doesn't fit what the masses need, right? And I always take a, and you know, we'll talk about buying for the banks and stuff like that. It's the same. I always take a really boring risk um, based approach to all of this, right? And and it should stand you well if um, you know if you're not too. Um, you just got to be sensible, I guess. So again, if I'm looking at a place and the vast majority of people live in freestanding houses. And a small amount of people live in, um, you know, other things like townhouses, something like that. Then I'm by and large, I'm just going to be looking at where the majority are. So you, you know, you, you can decide what that looks like for you. But certainly, if you you're under the sort of, you know, around that five to ten percent or something, it just says to me that if I need to rent it, it could be a little bit harder. If I need to sell it, it could be a little bit harder, right? And the bank may view that the same. So um, that's kind of the first thing. So I look at um, ABS Quick Stats for that, and again, there's. There's other bits of software to do it for you, but this is straight from the government. It's it's pretty easy to use, and you just scroll down. You just have a bit of a look at it. It'll give you a bit more information as well over dwelling types. So you talk about number of bedrooms. Um, so, again, we're just being sensible. So we just say, well, you know, the majority of people live in three bedrooms or four bedrooms. Okay, it's probably where I'm going to um, focus my search, right? Um, again, the, the date is a little bit old now, and we get um, – I think they start collecting the census in, in this year, in 2021. I don't know when, when we get access to that, though. So, again, you, you're working off pretty old data now. Um, so then you've got to sort of really understand what it looks like at the minute. And then, you know, you jump on domain, you look at real estate, and just first of all, you might want to have a look at it from a, um, a, a full rent point of view. So hopefully where you're buying, there will be very few for rent, right? So I know some of the places I'm looking at in Brisbane, there's, um, there's bugger all for rent because the vacancy rates are so very low. But, yes. Um, you know, and that, that, there's problems with that. There's don't don't necessarily see this just as a win from a um, without going too airy fairy from a society point of view. That that can have obviously issues. But um, from a selling point of view, then you know you sort of look and, and have a look at just your suburb, right? So don't look at surrounding suburbs, but just the suburb you're interested in, and just see what's selling. Look at things that are um, you know sticking on the market a little bit longer, 
uh, assuming it's not an auction-based market, what, what might be on the market a little bit longer, what's selling a little bit quicker, what tends to stay up for, you know, bugger all and then and then drop off. And, you know, then you've got to jump on the phone, right? So these things are desktop. You can do them whenever. You're not going to get this sort of intel until you jump on the phone and speak to a property manager and ask them what's renting. I do that all the time. What, what do tenants want? If I had a three-bedroom, would you be able to rent it as well as a four and, you know, and adjust for price accordingly? So that's... That's how I sort of understand about what types of properties I might want to look at. And again, it's sensible little tips that uh, you don't have to be Einstein to do, but you just sort of got to, got to follow a bit of a process and then, um, you know, you should do better. Um, and to be honest, I've forgotten the other two <laughs> questions you were asking <laughs> as I rambled along. No, we were talking about uh, the the land component and, and what the banks find attractive in an investment or at least perhaps attractive is the wrong word, but that doesn't set off the risk red flags. Yeah, right. So land value and land content are a, another tricky one, almost in the same realm as supply and demand, and they're easy to, to chuck out there and talk, but, but few people sort of really um, understand it properly, I'd argue. So first up to um, separate the notion of land content, land value. So I can get plenty of, of places on a lot of dirt that may not have a great value attached to them at the same time i can i can find somewhere sort of inner city or um we're not in the middle of cbd perhaps but in those sort of middle ring inner ring suburbs that um are smaller but you know the, the actual value of that land is quite high right so that that's that bit so i'm actually looking at the value of the land so what I, what i can i can do is i can sort of um highlight a couple of different property types i think that that can get uh, decent land value components, right? So, um, and some that perhaps might not. So, I've um, you know back in the day, and, and not necessarily now, but had a, had a, a bit of success with some of those smaller sort of red brick style walk up close to stations, close to in close east to cities, but you know walk to cafes, pubs, whatever those sort of things in in various places I've invested in. Um, so they, you know, they're, they're relatively small on, on paper. Right, my, my unit was only fifty-two square meters, so you wouldn't say there's any land there. But but it has a great value attached to it because it, you know, there's no more land around there. So that you know, potentially the higher use for that would be um, a new development over the top. Um, doubtful in some of them, but sometimes that can happen. And then you know, what you're basically trying to, in essence, minimize is paying too much for the property itself. And paying as much as you can, almost for the land underneath that, right? But but I think back to um, a, a place I bought um, to one of my own purchases in, in in Brisbane, and the land value of that was basically the same as what I was paying, but it had a I don't know a twenty five year old brick home on it, right? Three bedroom, nothing too flash, but it it was just it was a good deal, and the inherent land value of that because it, it's got development opportunities and because it's in a uh, a decent enough area, um, you know, you sort of, again, you've, you've just mitigated your risk because you're making sure that you're not paying too much for that for that actual property, right? So, um, you know, and you, what you're investing in is is that land, whether, you know, whether you want to develop or not. It doesn't really matter because even if I don't want to develop, probably won't, to be honest, somebody down the track might, right? And that has inherent value for them and it's another way that I've sort of mitigated my risk and I've given myself um, every opportunity so um, for growth and I guess like the flip side of that is is some style properties which uh, I talk about a lot of people talk about it's those sort of um, you know high rise um, apartments which might and and again you know those sort of smaller things on on the outskirts of town you know sometimes they just what you're basically paying for is 
most of what you're you're spending money on is property and, and not so much land, right? So there's no uh, magic formula on that, but you know, as high as possible, right? Um, and again, if you then sort of parlay that into what a bank might look for, well, you know, I I'm not a not a broker of of <laughs> I'm a cert for in broking, but um, that I don't know why, but um, you know, but I'm not a broker, but you, you should be working with. Um, you know, a, a mortgage broker through all of this and understand where banks are with with regard to certain property types. But again, that's a point in time. So I would take a, um, a you know, a higher level view and just say that if a bank's not willing to lend to you or other people, obviously, at a, at a good amount, so, you know, you're sort of 80% um, without LMI, um, if they're not willing to do that, well, that will tell me a red flag, right? So straight off the bat, things like um, student accommodation, um, you know, really small studios or um, things like that. Then you, you know they can they can be a red flag, red flag for a, for a bank. And then um, there's there are occasions, as I understand, um, where suburbs will have a risk rating put on them as well. So basically, to me, property is is um, you know you you want to be as you're buying for the bank almost because what we're buying is property, but we may as well be buying stamps or tulips or whatever it might be if you're willing if you can get that leverage underneath it right so the reason that we do focus on on real estate is because um over you know over generations it's been well supported by banks right so it, it effectively property as, as a as a means to grow wealth um is almost predicated on the fact that you're getting lending for that right so um you know there's obvious sort of um limitations around that you don't want to mortgage yourself to the hill um, and to be honest, I'm a bit concerned about that with where we're going at the moment with low interest rates for some suburbs. Um, but, you know, in everything you do, you should look at who's financing the property because it's unlikely you're putting all cash in. If you are, great. But um, if you are, you probably don't need to worry about selling it. But if you've got debt on that and the bank's not willing to lend you, uh, you know, a sensible amount on that, say 80% if they're capping it right down, well, that would tell me that A, I need to put more into the deal, which gives me less flexibility and less cash flow buffer. But B, when I need to sell that in the future, it's probably going to be the same sort of situation. So my pool of potential buyers is dramatically reduced and everything I look for on a sort of, you know, when I look to mitigate risk is to have as big a pool of buyers as, as possible. So again, it comes back to our supply-demand thing. So um, on this one, I'd basically be, if I'm looking at a particular property, I'm not sure I'm running that by the broker, um, you know, straight away to, to understand what that is. So um, caveat on that, you, that's not to say you can't make money on these things, right? Then you can. But, you know, there's, there's plenty of people who have bought, you know, tiny little sort of studios and turned them into very successful Airbnb stuff. I view that not necessarily sort of long-term investing more as a little business, so that's probably, you know, a discussion for later. But but for the mum and dad investors out there who are just looking for, um, you know, the safer sort of bet, then that's another thing that I, I take into consideration about, um, you know, buying something that banks are, are generally going to be in favour of. And they're always going to like real estate more than tulips. Interesting you mentioned tulips. Yeah, I'm I regret if, saying that as soon as I said it. <laughs> well, actually, I'm wondering if there's there's some story. I mean, you're far more educated than, than I in the financial space. And I, I heard or I read something a little while ago about there being some crazy asset 
tulip price bubble historically, maybe a few hundred years ago. Was that a reference to that or you just picked it off? No, I just um, I just randomly picked it out, which uh, every now and then I should I, I do. So um, <laughs> feel free um, to edit that out. But <laughs> basically to say that real estate is, um, you know, it's, it's underpinned by the banks like that. So we're fortunate out here that we've got, you know, a very strong banking sector, right, and things change and obviously we're, um, there's some changes coming in, in 2021 regarding responsible lending criteria and stuff. But, but in essence, you're a partner with a bank, you're a partner with a tenant, all these things. So I think that you need to, to treat it accordingly. Um, that's, yeah. I, I like that idea though, because, I, and I've heard people say that before, we're buying, you know, stamps, tulips, uh, kebabs, if, if it can do the same thing as what property does, like a property is, is just kind of the, the medium that we're working in as we're chasing our, our goals of financial freedom or whatever they, they may be. And that thinking like that helps you to think of it more like a business. And I think that's something that property investors can struggle to do. How, how, how does the average investor start thinking about property investing as a, as a business? Because I know you're a big advocate of this idea. Yeah, um, yeah, I am. I mean, um, what I sort of mean by that is, again, it's it's more just um, taking an approach that means that you're more intentional with everything and not just floating around. Because go back to what I said before, it's it's relatively simple to invest in property out here. It doesn't mean you get it right, but it's it's relatively simple. So I, I guess from a business point of view, um, the the first and foremost, to the degree that you can, is understand why you're doing it have have a sort of an end in mind if if you like so um for most people that may mean they, they might want to work with their accountant or financial planner or whoever that might be um to pretty much understand what you, what your your properties need to do for you because um in essence you you're kind of buying a little business right like it might not look like a shop front or something but you've got as i said you've got you've got banks that are partners you've got your your tenants which i guess i guess are your customers um I don't want to stretch that analogy too far. I'll get myself confused. But <laughs> we've had some great ones with the funnel and the sieve, oh. but no, keep going. Let's yeah. let's get weird with it. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. So, um, but anyway, like if you've got that sort of, if you know why you're doing that, and, and certainly for myself, I have a uh, well. You can imagine it's a pretty detailed sort of plan, right? But in, in essence, it doesn't need to be right. I had a very detailed one, and then I had a, a high level one, right? But but. It's the process of doing it. It's not necessarily what the spreadsheet says at the end or the report says at the end. It's the process of doing it. Um, and, and once you've got that, you, you might have buy-in from your spouse or, or if you're buying yourself, that's cool. Then you just look to work toward that plan. And I think if you do that, as simple as it sounds, you're going to avoid, for the most part, the shiny objects, right? Because even myself, I've been investing for a long time, um, work with a lot of investors. Um, but even I see some stuff, I'm like, oh, wow, that looks good. Look, you know. And I'll check it out and then I'll remember why I don't necessarily need that, that type of property or whatever, right? Um, but I guess in, in real practical, something that your, your listeners can, can take away, um, I, I track stuff on a spreadsheet. It's not that exotic, but I, I do, right? I write down, um, you know, things of what, what sort of interest rates I've got. And it just basically tells me roughly where my, my cash flow is for, for a particular property, right? I don't forecast out maintenance or anything like that because it's, you know, you might have a reserve there, but you don't, you don't know when your hot water is going to blow, you know, but, but you do need to have buffers in place for that. But I think if you're just in a simple terms, if you're a bit more proactive than most, you'll go a long way, right? So what, and it's taken me a while to, to, to get here and it's, it's not hard work, but I do sort of um, monthly checks of my property 
statements, which seems so very simple, but I tell you, I didn't always used to do it. And I guarantee you that most people won't. I've got a little spreadsheet, as you can imagine, because that's what I do. Um, and I basically just get my, um, my property thing and I, I put it in there and I tick it all the way back to what I received in the bank, right? And, you know, so it basically goes through and then I know that um, I, I'm paying the right things. And if that doesn't equal what I've got in the bank, then it's just an email to the property manager. And I can tell you that has saved me hundreds of dollars because things have been missed, right? So, and it's not intentional on their behalf. No one, generally speaking, would be malicious to to be ripping you off. But I've had plenty of times where there's been double charges of things by by mistake from the property manager, and that's cool. You highlight it, you get your money back. But if you don't do those things, you're probably leaving a few dollars on the table. Um, but it's also about knowing that things are being paid. I've had occasions when property managers have missed uh, counsel for a couple of quarters. Now, it's not them who's going to be on the hook for that. It's going to be me, right? So then you've got to get on top of that. But if you're not actually proactively looking um, and checking these things, and it's really easy not to, right? Because they'll come into an email and, um, you know, you can just put it into a different folder and it goes into the check it later kind of um, system, right? And, and sometimes we never check things later. But if you're missing things for a long time, then it's going to be you who's on the hook for it, not your manager. So um, to that end, I sort of, I diarise important things. so. Um, that takes you, what, a minute to put into a Google Calendar. But the basically the one I, I look at is um, insurance. So I get my property manager to pay for everything, right, because I, I, that's better for me and as long as they're doing it, it's um, it's a good system. What I will never outsource, however, is my landlord insurance and or building and contents insurance if I need that um, because that's too important to miss because if I miss that, then, you know, again, from a risk management point of view, it could be game over, <laughs> um, you yes. know. You'd have to be unlucky, but unlucky things happen. So that's, you know, we, we do all that as well. Speak to your property manager is whenever you want to. It might just be a simple email and just go, look, um, how's everything going? Do, you know, do the tenants need anything? Are they mentioning anything? Are my rents at the right level? Because even if you're not um, looking to increase them, it's good just to know where you are because if you can increase them in, in three or four months, then you need to get on, on top of that um, as, as early as you can because it takes time to notify tenants. Um, that's not uh, to say that you should always increase. That that just comes down to if you've got a good tenant. Right? I had one um, in Adelaide just two weeks ago or last week where we decided to put it up at just a smidge, right? And it, it would be under market, but they're very good tenants, right? And that, to me, is, is a trade-off that I'm willing to take because I'm pretty sure they're going to be there the long term and I don't have to um, get every dollar out of them. It's not, it's not the way I operate my business. Um, what else? So, yeah, and, and I guess like if, if you're sort of outside the individual properties, just to speak to your broker. So to find good brokers, right, they're, they're worth their weight in gold. It's taken me a while to, to get um, to, to where I am with my broker um, and, you know, knowing that they're, they're very good um, because they, you know, it should be in their interest because they can help you grow your portfolio. But, you know, you want to be looking at your lending structure, you um, you want to be looking at are you with the right banks and you're just being a bit more proactive. That's not a monthly thing. That might be every every year or so. But but again, it's just taking those steps and, um, you know, doing what most people won't do and it, it should just sort of, um, you know, put you in better stead than um, perhaps otherwise. So, again, it, it's just being intentional and just ticking a few more boxes to, to keep the little um, properties running as they should. 
Beautiful. That's awesome advice. And it just shows how how great it is when we get an analytical bloke <laughs> on the show. Um, yeah, uh, it, it I'm heaps of fun at parties, hey? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I imagine you're getting a lot of invites. Um, Brendan, uh, it, it's, been, it's been awesome and, and time certainly flies when you're having fun. I'd love to get you back on the show, but I uh, wanted, wanted to ask if, um, if people are wanting to get in contact with you, what's the best way to do that? Uh, yeah, just reach out via my website, which is uh, thepropertycurator.com.au. Um, email and, and um, telephones uh, on there. And if anybody's got any particular questions or, or whatnot, um, just drop me a line. And, and you know, I'm, I'm on all the socials, as the young people say. <laughs> TikTok, Clubhouse, all those? Oh, I still don't get Clubhouse, but I've got FOMO now. So <laughs> I look forward to you getting me an invite <laughs> to find out what I'm missing out on. I just got one the other day. Oh, I don't get it. No. Um, so I'm on there, but, yeah, uh, yeah don't, don't look me up. Um, <laughs> if, if there's one piece of advice that you could give to property in- investors as, as, a, as a finishing note, what would that be? One piece, um, I would just say run your own race, right? That's obviously not an original thought. I've, I've clearly stolen that from someone uh, more intelligent than myself. But uh, run your own race. Don't You don't need to compare yourself to anybody. And the, the problem I have with, um, you know, I guess this industry, I love this industry, I love what I do, but it can create this sort of FOMO from people, right? Like, it, it, you know, I've, you know, such and such has got 30 properties, such and such has got 40, and such and such is retired and living on the beach. Yeah, maybe. But you don't, you know, you find out what you need to do and you work accordingly and you get your plan, you get people to help you, um, you be intentional about it, you take the long term plan. It's not an overnight thing. This is not a, a get rich quick at all. Um, you shouldn't view it as such. And, you know, if you, you know what you're trying to get out of it, you don't. You, you separate out the noise is basically what I'm trying to say um, because there will be, like, you jump, just jump on social, it's going to start, you'll get retargeted if you click on any sort of um, property um, property story. So, um, you know, run your own race, find out what you need to do and don't worry about what other people are doing or what they're telling you you're doing. I love it. Awesome advice and you've shared some, some real gold today, Brendan. Thanks very much for coming on. No worries, Mike. Thanks for having me. Cheers.